from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Episode 16 of the uh, Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman here, and we're welcoming Chris Kaplis from MIT. Welcome aboard, Chris. Great. Glad to be here, Irv. Steve? Just as a brief introduction of Chris, because he wanted to keep it brief. Dr. Kaplis serves as the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Center of Transportation and Logistics, CTL, where he is responsible for the planning and management of research, education, and corporate outreach programs for the center. He also created and currently serves as the director of the MIT's MicroMasters program in supply chain, the very first MicroMasters credential ever offered. Chris uh, was selected as the first Silver Family Research Fellow in 2016 in recognition of his contribution to supply chain education and research. And also in 2016, he received the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals Distinguished Service Award. Steve, join me in welcoming Chris to, to, our, to our podcast. Welcome, Chris. We're glad to have you join us here today and uh, appreciate your insights on the great world of supply chain management, transportation, logistics, everything that is MIT and anything else you want to talk about. Awesome. Glad to be here. This should be fun. So Chris runs a podcast called Freight Vine, so it'll be very interesting because he's usually the interviewer. Now he has to be somewhat the interviewee today. So we'll just say collaborator for today's. There we go. Excellent. So I'm sure the uh, uh, MIT is doing some uh, great things in the area of supply chain management, education, research. Uh, tell us about some recent work that's coming up with uh, MIT's uh, CTL. The big news for CTL, the Center for Transportation Logistics, is that in 2023, we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary. So we were founded in 1973. Some of our initial sponsors were UPS in Burlington Northern, believe it or not. And so along back then there, I think they were just Burlington. They hadn't merged with Santa Fe yet. So the big news is we're hitting our 50th. So we're having a bunch of celebrations throughout the year, having different speakers coming in. Fred Smith will be here to kick it off in January. We have a CEO fireside roundtable happening in March that we're lining up. And it's also the 25th year of our master's program, our supply chain management master's program. So we're celebrating a lot of big dates. But some of the things that we have going on that are kind of interesting is uh, the MicroMasters program. We just registered or had our millionth registration of our MicroMasters courses. And those consist of five online courses, each one 12 weeks, and they cover soup to nuts, supply chain management, at least from MIT's perspective. So it's somewhat quantitative as you would expect, but it uh, it's nice to see it having resonance, 196 different countries. Like I said, a million course registrations. So that's pretty fun. So on the education side, we're seeing a real boom in this, and I'm sure you are as well with the supply chain is no longer, let's put it this way, everyone knows what supply chains are and that people recognize that it's something that maybe I want to get and make my career go into that. So that's that's a two big things. One last one, and then we can move on to other topics, is we launched our CAVE, or Computational and Visual Education Lab. It's a large, essentially touch screen, the size of a wall, and it allows for groups to come in and make uh, joint decisions of complex problems where you bring people together and it has some pretty sophisticated optimization underneath the visualization. And we've used it for a handful of different companies, but what we're finding is uh, what it's really helpful for is bringing multiple different stakeholders together to make a decision. So it's kind of combining the power of optimization, simulation, and visualization to make better decisions. And I think we're going to talk about that more because we're finding that the human 
is still the integral part, but finding better ways for humans, especially with different shareholder or stakeholder interests and priorities come together to a consensus. So that's kind of the big things that we've been working on up here at uh, CTL, but we have a lot of other stuff going on as well. Pretty interesting, isn't it, Chris, that you know, supply chain was sort of an afterthought and then COVID came along and we got COVID lemonade. Now we're all rock stars, right? Yeah, it's funny. It's I, I joke that it replaced uh, politics as the thing that people complained about over Thanksgiving dinners over the last two years. Because everyone knew what a supply chain was. It was the thing that was not letting me get my, you know, fill in the blank here, whether it's toilet paper, new new car or whatever. So yeah, everyone knows what a supply chain is and everyone got to see the sausage getting made. Our audience can't physically see you, Chris, but I can. And I'm guessing you were not there on day one 50 years ago. Just seeing you, seeing you picked early. Can you tell Irv and I and our audience a little bit about your background and how you got to your chair there at MIT? Yeah, I kind of came into this domain supply chain sideways. So I was a civil engineer by training. I went to the Virginia Military Institute, graduated with my CE degree, went in the army for five years back when there was a West Germany. That's where I was. And so then after that, I came to UT Austin, where I got my master's in transportation, engineering and civil and decided I never wanted to build a road because you'd have to work for the government. And I really didn't want to work for the government. So I kind of flipped to say what stuff happens on the roads, got interested in uh, you know public transportation, then really more interesting is uh, freight. Uh, trucks and things like that. Came to MIT, got my PhD under Yossi Sheffi, and my dissertation was on combinatorial auctions for transportation procurement. And I went into software for 10 years on that, developing it, launching it, actually delivering uh, bids and did that for a number of years at a company that is now part of Manhattan Associates. That software turned into a product. And then in around 2003, when everything was going down the drains, if you guys remember the uh, the aftermath of the dot-com bubble, and the uh, software drain that everything was circling, I came back, I was asked to come back to MIT. And in, in between that, I was at Chainalytics for a while, but then I came full-time to MIT and I ran the master's program. Now I'm running CTL as a whole. So I kind of came in sideways. And the beautiful thing about being at MIT is that they highly encourage you to keep one foot in industry, man and manis, hand in mind, right? And so that allowed me, while I've been here for, gosh, almost 20 years now, I was also serving as chief scientist at Chainalytics at the exact same time. And the, the nice thing is that both sides benefited, I think, because I was able to see ideas that were done in academia and see them put into practice. And so that's a nice thing to see. And it's something that, in my opinion, academics miss too much of because they tend to focus on things that might be interesting to their small group of people who read the journals, but are not as applicable outside. And so my long-winded journey to where I am now, I kind of came through civil engineering and kind of fell into this industry that didn't have a name when I got my master, my undergrad degree. I think it's interesting that Penn State and MIT have a lot of shared values in that respect. We operate under under the model of engaged scholarship as well. Sure. Um, many of our women and men are actively involved in solving real-world problems with their research. So yeah, they, they publish in A-journals. That's their goal. That's their research faculty. But... Uh, but we also have a, a cohort of, you know, clinical and teaching faculty, but everybody is sort of has this engagement with industry. And so it's nice to see yeah. that commonality. The other connection between our two schools, which a lot of people don't notice, is the scholarships that you offer to some of our undergrads who, after they leave us, they go out into industry and they go back to MIT to earn their graduate degrees. And that's a nice pathway because they get to see two different perspectives. They get to see the Penn State perspective, the MIT perspective. 
creates for a, a more well, I think a more well-rounded individual in the long run. I, I agree. Um, they have to spend at least three years out in industry. Cause we found, I don't know if you've seen this differently, Steve, is that if someone goes all the way through undergrad and then goes straight to grad school, they're kind of escaping reality and they don't necessarily know what they want. I think grad school's best when you've had a couple of years away from academia and say, Hey, is this really what I want to do? Cause it makes you a little more hungry. Cause at this point, if someone's gone all the way through, they've been in school since they were five. And so it's very helpful to have a gap, I think. I mean, there are, there are obviously disciplines where that that's not necessary, you know, especially in STEM, but you know um, in our discipline that, three to five to seven years of experience that you get before you go into graduate school is invaluable because you bring your own experiences into the classroom. And uh, I know as a, as an academic, I'm sure you share the same opinion. I'd much prefer in graduate class having young women and men in front of me who have experience and can talk about the problems they've experienced, things that they've seen, as opposed to trying to just convey knowledge to them and hope they absorb absorb what we're talking about. So I, I appreciate it as a faculty member as well. Teaching undergrads is tough. Well, it's, it's boring because they'll take whatever you say and write it down as notes. Um, but grad school, I love it. We teach, I teach a class with 60, 70 people. And I joke that they mostly, um, you know, MBAs, SCM students, uh, manufacturing and everything, that there's more experience, you know, in the audience than me. You just happen to each have about three to five years of it. And so it's so much more interesting because they'll challenge you. My favorite class that I ever taught was a group of night students when I was living in Richmond and at the University of Richmond. These were people who were working full time and they're coming at night to get their degree. And they were really interested in it. They, they were the most fun to teach because they didn't uh, let me uh, slide on anything. They challenged me on everything. And that was great. That's always more fun. Nor did they just spend their time asking what was on the exam. <laughs> yeah, that's so frustrating. So for us, but let me go back to a point that you made earlier, Steve, about uh, the academics and A journals and everything. Here's the thing that I, my opinion on that, it's, yeah, most of the A journals, that's fine. They're read by people who submit articles to the A journals. And it's such a closing in group and that people are chasing this thing that's becoming further and further removed from reality. Now, if we were in, you know, biology or in, you know, something else where that science mattered, we're very applied. I mean, supply chain is about as applied as you can be. So if you don't, I mean, coming up with a theoretical construct that solves a problem optimally that has, say, three terminals is a waste of time, in my opinion, because, you know, <laughs> no one has a three terminal network. You have many more. So I think having at least some reality in your projects makes so much more sense. And it's I wish the A journals would. And I think some are getting more allowing some empirical work, you know, and, and stressing that. Because for a while there, if you had empirical research, you wouldn't be considered. So I, I think the more, especially in supply chain management, transportation, it's such an applied science. Um, I think, I, I wish we had more of that. I agree. But I, like I said, I, we, we have similar values at both of our institutions in that our faculty are for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, working on applied research and trying to put it in, trying to put it in the top journals they can get in the world. So that's a win-win. That, that's, that served two purposes. So keeping the applied science top of the agenda here, Chris's work when he was with, uh, with us at Chainalytics had to deal with what was called our Freight Management Intelligence Consortium, where we had probably what, Chris, about $30 billion in transportation spend? Around there. Closer to 20. We've doubled it since then at DAT, but yes. Yeah. Now it's part of DAT. And uh, maybe you can talk a, a few minutes about the data, how it's used, and 
some of the intelligence there, and then we could use that as a launching board to talk a little bit more about new technology. So the whole idea of the Freight Market Intelligence Consortium, and this is something that I started, but there have been many other people who've really made huge contributions to this, Matt Harding, Inami Yub, and many others. But essentially the idea was, wouldn't it be nice if I could have a good estimate of what the price of a truckload move from A to B would be from anywhere to anywhere in the United States? And the way we could get to that is something I had done earlier just a, a little bit. And the idea is you collect a bunch of rates from shippers that are participating in the consortium. And then you essentially run a large ordinary least squared regression or some kind of regression where you're trying to determine what drives the costs. And so you can separate out the distance. You can separate out the origin effect, the destination effect, the effect of its hazmat, the effect of its team. And so by pulling out these different dimensions by using, again, a pretty standard regression, you can come up with some pretty interesting insights. And so this has grown from, I think we started it, we started Irv, before you were at Chainalytics, I think. I think it was 2003 was the first model. That's right. And I think it was used oftentimes as a launching board to perform better network optimization analysis. That was one of the things that was an unintended consequence and a benefit because one of the biggest consumers of rate information is network design, right? Because you want to plant in a new place, you have no history, so you need to know what is the transportation footprint going to look like for the, the rates out of that. And so this became a nice fit um, to Chainalytics. The benefits of it are a couple. Um, one is shippers naturally can't really compare their contract rates with each other. It probably violates their own contracts. But by separating out and creating a model, you allow them to share the essence of how they fit to the quote market without actually sharing data. So they're not colluding. They're actually being compared to where the general market's going. Because the fun thing about truckload transportation, the market, uh, no one is a market maker. Everyone takes the price. It's too massive. The biggest buyer, Walmart, cannot set the price on anything. The biggest provider, Cares, Knight Swift, Hunt, Schneider, if they all got together, they would still be a minuscule piece of it. So it's kind of like the waves on an ocean. And so as it moves, companies need to compare themselves not to just how they did last year, but how are you doing compared to the waves in the ocean? And so what the FMIC is able to do is capture where is that market? Where is the wave? And say, how are you above the wave, below the wave? Can you explain that? Because it helps them, we're finding, explain freight transportation to CFOs, CEOs, and chief purchasing officers, CPOs, because they have no clue because truckloads are a little weird, right? And so what the FMIC is able to do is extract out from uh, transactional data what the cost drivers are, and then turn that into intelligence that the transportation executives can use to make decisions on what to bid out, what not to bid out, and how to communicate that up to the C-suite. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does. Uh, I, I am curious, I'm sure Irv and I are both curious about, if you went back three years, right? And now we're in, I, I don't like to call it the new normal. I think, what did Yossi call it? The, the new, new unusual or the new, new abnormal? Yeah, it was a Mel Brooks reference, actually. Exactly, yeah. Abby Normal from the, from the Young Frankenstein, yeah. I caught the gist of that when he said it. But if you think back to pre-pandemic, you know, you had this you had this tool that you've been using for a couple of decades, and I'm sure you were probably able to fairly accurately predict what was going on. And then we had this disruption come along. What have you seen in the last three years and insights maybe going forward that that, that may be new as it relates to the to the freight market and analytics in the freight market that uh, that have changed dramatically in that period? Yeah. So one thing is the tool was not a prediction, not meant to make a forecast. 
that's something separate. It's really to understand if I was going to do contract rates right now, what should I be paying? So it's more of a comparative model. We've since developed, you know, models going forward. And of course, we predicted the pandemic five years ago, you know, we we're that good of modelers. No, no one is going to believe that, but okay. <laughs> no, but so what we what we're able to do is so the tool is very valuable during the pandemic because it gave cover essentially to the executives who would be fired otherwise. That my my contract rates have gone up, you know, 40%. It's like, what what are you doing wrong? It's like, no, the wave, it's a big wave. Yeah. And this is what's happening. And so it helps them explain to their CFO why if I read somewhere that spot rates are down 50%. Why aren't my contract rates down 50%? They're different, right? One is one is like weather, the other is like climate, and you can go into all those kind of things. So what we, what we found is that the tool became more valuable during any times of uncertainty or, or peak capacity, things like that, because the executives needed some tool to say, hey, let's make sense of this, especially when bids were uh, that are usually done annually. We're now being done, you know, quarterly, monthly. Some are even running them weekly because the capacity was so tight. So there's a lot of that going on. But I think what really happened, there's some interesting things that happened during the pandemic on the freight side. Uh, one is packaging changed, right? Because a lot of uh, companies that would normally sell a large chunk of their uh, product through, say, the uh, a restaurant channel, service channel, they were now going pure retail. So if you think of like uh, beverages, sodas, the amount, I think it takes six trucks to, to move in cans what would normally in a box in a bag that you'd send to restaurants. So even if the demand for the end product was the same, suddenly you had to have that much more truck capacity. So that was one big thing. The other thing is schedules were so tight because of the demand suddenly peaked in June of 2020, you know, just shot up through the roof and a bunch of supply was shut down. So you had tight timelines. So people were, they were, being forced to make the decision, do I want to be on time or in full, right? ODIF. And they were constantly saying, I need to be on time. So I won't, I, I can't wait to be in full. So utilization dropped. And so you have more trucks for the same amount of, of product now because you, you weren't going to wait for it. So that increased, again, the number of trucks that were required. And the last thing is because networks, and Irv, you know this much better than I do, Networks became crazy, right? And so instead of doing an annual or every two years network design, people were doing it on the fly for flow because you'd have, uh, I was talking to General Mills a, a couple months ago and they were opening up contract manufacturers left and right. And so they'd have to redirect the flow. Whenever you have a network that's out of balance, truckload, they're gonna, the empty miles are going to increase because there's, there's no balance. And so these three factors really contributed and doing our models, we kind of could figure this out why there was so much more demand for trucking, even when the total total demand, yeah, it increased, but not by the same rate that truckload increased. So by using a model like this, you can kind of get to the roots of why are the truckload rates and why is the truckload volume so much higher than the underlying demand. I was always fascinated by that secondary impact that you talked in the middle about how companies were defaulting. And I would, I would assume customers drive this too, because they put penalties on you for being late. Absolutely. So they actually create an incentive to ship a less than full truckload to be on time, but that puts pressure on the capacity, which drives up rates. And, and again, with other factors like driver shortages or whatever, it just makes the situation that much worse to try to manage. Yeah. And then remember the labor problems were much worse then um, because you're scheduling at docks, um, having DC workers. So it was very, very fluid. And you'd have to make that decision. And I think 
the retailer also would prefer to have 50% of an order than nothing, you know, in, in two weeks. So it, it, it's a trade-off and it's still being played. I mean, um, on-time infill OTIF stuff has been plaguing, not plaguing. I mean, it's there for a purpose. It's there to try to improve efficiency and it's, it's trying through penalties to force that up the supply chain. But the thing during the pandemic, it's not like people were not trying. <laughs> so it wasn't like they were hiding the inventory and not delivering it. Things were coming off of the production line into a truck. Yeah. So it, it really changed. And that's settled down a little bit since then. When, when you think about the, the, the big shift that we saw from shopping at the retail level, I'm talking about the consumer side, obviously, <clears throat> shopping at the retail level to the shift to e-commerce. And, and I know that's starting to pick up speed now uh, or real steam on the grocery side. How do you think that shift has affected the trucking markets? You know, it's it's funny because I think a lot of people are saying the real driver there has been, well, one of the effects has been LTL has really gone through the roof, their demand, but it's mainly for the middle mile. It's not like LTL is making home deliveries anytime right. soon. They've never been good at yeah. that, right? They've, if you, anyone's ever had a big piece of furniture delivered by an LTL carrier, they know that the, the driver looks for a dock at your home, right? And so it just doesn't work. But the middle mile scheduled runs, they are phenomenal at that. And we're seeing more LTL care starting to grow that truckload side of their business. Actually, I was just talking with Avert Express and they're growing that in their Southeast, you know, their region. So it's pretty interesting to see that, see that happen. But overall though, e-commerce, it's interesting. If you follow the statistics, you know, is is on this nice little nonlinear growing exponential growth and then pandemic happened and went through the roof. And depending on who you read it, it increased you know, eight years and eight months or 10 years and three months, whatever. But then it's fallen. It fell for like six quarters in a row and it's back on that pre-pandemic curve. So it's kind of fallen from earth a little bit. It's it's higher than it was, yep. but it's not like people aren't going to stores anymore. So that's one thing. It went back to the normal progression. I would, with the expected line, it kind of fell back to where it was. Right. And maybe it's gone up a little bit. But the other thing is, and I was talking with Jason Miller about this, um, from Michigan. And, and the idea is, you know, what is e-commerce? So if I order it online, but pick it up in the store, who gets credit? Is that in the store or is that online? Or if I see it in the store, order it in the store, but have it delivered at home, where is that? And so the line between e-commerce is is kind of, and, and regular commerce is changing. And, and so I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years if they stop reporting e-commerce numbers, because it's very arbitrary how it's uh, being done. It has dramatically changed retailers. I mean, when I did work for Walmart and some other retailers, say 10 years ago, the last mile was to the store. Yeah. I mean, that was it. And now it's this whole other distribution network. So that's really changed, but it's put a lot of pressure on the middle mile as well to bring that out um, because the, the distribution points are getting closer and closer. So you're having more need for a nice backbone of a middle mile structure. Part of what we wanted to talk to you about today was to sort of get thinking about how technology is going to change these markets going forward. And, uh, you know, I often use the quote by uh, founder of Microsoft, yeah, Bill Gates, which is, we always underestimate what's going to happen in a year, but or overestimate what's going to happen in a year, but underestimate what's going to happen in a decade. I thought the quote that you were going to use was the one that Mark Twain says, it said that Mike likes, Kilgore likes to say, which is history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. You know, the, the idea that we tend to under overestimate short-term benefits and underestimate long-term benefits of any innovation. I agree. 
100%. Well, this one will resonate with academics. My favorite Mark Twain quote is, there are three kinds of untruths, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Anyway, back to the question. So when you think about technologies, right, and, and you have a broad experience in the history of technology and applications of technology, two questions for you. Let's start with the soft side. How do you think tools like artificial intelligence, and I guess more specifically machine learning, since that's the most commonly used one, how do you think that's going to impact the way that we uh, utilize freight uh, and logistics? Mm -hmm. Good, bad, or indifferent? And then the second question is, as we, as we begin to sort of approach the point where we're going to see the advent of autonomous vehicles in the transportation markets, what potential, and I know you can't predict this, but what potential impacts is that going to have? So let's talk about soft technologies and hard technologies. What do you think about those two things? So I'm pro-innovation. <laughs> but, but so let's, let's talk about AI and, and machine learning. These are two of the most overly hyped letters, two-letter acronyms I've seen in a long time. You know, even RFID had four letters and it was overly hyped. These two-letter ones are just crazy because people, the further you are away from them, the more you expect them to do. Right. And so if you're involved in machine learning and everything, yeah, it has some real benefits. It, it certainly does. And artificial intelligence, I think they found machine learning is really good at classification. I mean, it's really found that's its niche. It's really good at doing that, but it's not so good at other things. And so I think we're finding where the boundaries are for that. Also, the definition of what is machine learning differs from person to person. And so most people will say, you know, neural networks, that that's machine learning. But you could also go in that regression is supervised learning, right? So it depends where you draw the line. But, but let's stay with, with neural networks. So we did something interesting here at MIT. My colleague, uh, Dr. Matthias Winkenbach, who runs the uh, Mega City Logistics Lab here, did a really interesting experiment with Amazon where they had uh, essentially a hackathon or a challenge where they gave, I forget how many thousands or millions of routes for local delivery from Amazon. And they asked for, for a open competition for teams across the world to come up with better um, routings. Now, not necessarily shortest distance or time, but that were better according to the drivers, because they found the drivers always had better information. And even though the routing system might have told them to go down this way, they say, I know that's not the right way to go because whatever local conditions. And so they had, I want to say, a hundred teams from across the world submitted things and, and go, went through this competition. And of the top five ones that, uh, that won and got the closest and had the best solutions, none of them used machine learning. Many tried to use machine learning, but it didn't work. The, the standard techniques, you know, newsboy, optimization won and, and were able to do a better job. So it's not, I'm not saying that machine learning doesn't make sense for anything, but it doesn't make sense for everything. It's a big hammer. And we're trying to explore where it is. So on the hype curve, you know, if you do the Gartner hype curve, it's still inflated. It's going to start, you know, people are starting to realize what it can do and what it can't do. But for me, any kind of better decision-making tool, because that's all it is. Humans still make decisions, right? And so we just have aids that help us. We had the optimization wave in the, well, we had the spreadsheet wave in the 80s, 90s. Then 90s, 2000s, the optimization wave where we could optimize everything. Then we had the RFID, you know, the communication, IoT things. And now we're seeing AI and ML. We're finding that it has roles. But what to me, the way I like to view it is there's a think of an ambiguity line. And so as the problem becomes less amb ambiguous, 
right? We can use technology and spreadsheets helped us do some things. Then optimization moved that ambiguity line where we let them, the system or the software solve the problem. Um, but there's always above a certain ambiguity level, a human is needed. And so to me, machine learning pushed the ambiguity line a little further. But it, it's another, I, I think of it as decision support, always. I'd never let the machine make the decision. Um, and so I, I see this helping freight in that it's moving that line where the human needs to be involved in saying uh, for freight transportation, do I need a phone to book every load? No. Some that fit a nice standard profile, I can start going quicker. And what machine learning is doing really AI and some better forecasting, I can auto accept something that's within a range of what I deem acceptable for a rate. Coming up with that range has some really tricky math to try to do a forecast so you don't go broke, right? And so, but that being applied to AI is, I see that as having benefits of reducing the number of people required to close a load, a shipment, so that those people can focus on something that is more ambiguous and needs and has a better benefit if someone applies their time there. So that's, that's where I view AI and ML. You started off the conversation a half hour ago by saying, you know, about the importance of people in the system. And I, I think Harold Levitt got it right in the 1960s when he said people, process, and technology actually had four quadrants. It got, it got shrunk down into pe- pe- those three. And people are always first. And they're always going to be first for the foreseeable future, right? Right. We need managers. But I love your, I love your take on it because it's the same take I have, which is, Technology is an enabler, right? It makes us do our jobs better, quicker, faster, and easier. But at the end of the day, people are going to be responsible and accountable, and they're going to have to make those management decisions. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, that thought process. I think there's a limitation to the, the number of people that are in supply chain these days. I mean, we're trying to educate and get more people interested in this profession. The problem is that we have a, lim- a limit to it. So if we can actually push the limit to help drive some decisions to actually make our people more productive, and successful, that's probably going to help also. Yeah. So if you look at something like um, network design, which or you know really well, right? And so the software has gotten so much better, but I'd argue that the amount of time that people spend on it really hasn't changed too much. Because as soon as you can do solve something 10% faster, you're going to have 10% more questions. <laughs> it's like the old paradox when the vacuum was introduced, people thought it would be a time saver and it didn't. The level of acceptable cleanliness went up. Right. And so it's the same thing here as I increase the horsepower. We see this in, in transportation. If I can run 100 scenarios instead of just 10 in the same amount of time, I'm going to look at 100 scenarios and still spend a week as opposed to if 10 took a week. So the level that I want to explore increases with the improvement in technology. But hopefully we're able to do more. We'll look at other things, consider other factors. Again, that ambiguity line, we push it a little further a little further along. So back to the second question I asked you, Chris, as you think about the advent of uh, autonomous vehicles, obviously you, you probably have an opinion on, on how soon is that going to, is that going to happen? If ever, right? That's always an option. And number two, if, and when it does, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the market? Yeah. So we'll have all autonomous trucks on May 10th, 2024. That's my, <laughs> I predicted the pandemic, you know, I can predict this. <laughs> So I've got another Bill Gates quote for you now, is that the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Maybe that's Gibson. I don't know. I don't know. But that's to me, that's it. So autonomous vehicles, they're here. They're already happening. They're operating. They're operating in different areas right now. Mining. You look at that. In There's a lot of autonomous vehicles in warehouses, in, in yards. 
So where you have a controlled space, it's happening now. And the technologies, you know, it's more controllable. Yeah. As you move outside that space, you have to look at the next adjacent possible. So what is the next adjacent place that is not within a controlled space where it makes sense? And I would argue that it's Arizona, Texas, southwestern part of the United States. The regulatory environment is very friendly. The weather is generally very friendly, very open, and it's flat, right? And so you're going to start seeing it there. And that's why Waymo has just, you know, they've, they've been doing autonomous taxis out of Chandler for a couple of years now, very quietly, right? Totally autonomous, totally autonomous. And it's, it's a little toy thing, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow. And so I think we're going to see it there on high volume lanes over the next one to five years. I don't think we'll see it in the Northeast for a decade or more. I just don't see it because it's just not, doesn't make sense. And it doesn't mean that you have to have a hundred percent for it to be worthwhile. This can come up in pieces. And so it's going to be lane by lane, corridor by corridor. And I think it's going to follow roughly the intermodal model where you're going to have a line haul on the highway that goes terminal to terminal by the robot. They'll hand it off to a human because the human needs to drive in that very ambiguous area called a city in last mile. I don't think we want robots driving there quite yet. And we're going to see the human driver. And there's an open question whether I'll need more drivers or fewer drivers. The one might not need as many for the longer haul, but for the shorter haul, you might need more. And they might be more productive. And plus, it's a better job. They get home at night. And they're driving trailers locally, but they're not necessarily unloading or loading. They're mainly shuttles from those off-ramps. So I, I see it happening. I see it happening in pieces. It's not going to be an overnight because it doesn't make sense for everywhere. All freight that's moving right now couldn't possibly be moved on the highway. It doesn't, even with robots, there's no way. And I think everyone realized this when the, uh, the railroad st strike was impending, right? We're going to have the railroad strike. And everyone said, oh my God, I can't, we can't, the highways cannot absorb what is going over yeah, the no rails. Way. And so- there's going to be a shift uh, of some things, and it, it'll be able to go longer distances, sure, because they won't have the uh, hours of service rules. But I, I think we're going to start seeing the effect on heavy, high-volume lanes in established quarters where the company owns both the origin and destination. I'm thinking UPS, FedEx, LTL terminals. I can see it happening there. I don't see robots delivering to our home anytime in the next 20 years, personally. But I'd love to get your take on it. What do you think, Steve? Irv, what do you think? I don't think I broadly disagree with anything that you said. I mean, uh, you and I are both ex-military. Like I said earlier, thank you for your service. And the military has been using autonomous vehicles now for years in different ways, shape, or form. Mining sites, like you said, other controlled environments where, you know, where you can kind of figure things out. Safety is not as big of a risk because there's not a bunch of people around. I kind of correlate it to the railroad model where you go from yard to yard, you know, the long haul, the long haul gets moved by by an autonomous vehicle, much like, you know, uh, you would move, you know, large scale shipments over a rail line. But then when you get down to the inner cities, are we going to see trucks rolling around in New York or Philadelphia or Chicago? No, not, not anytime soon. It just doesn't make any yeah. sense. And the other thing, which I always tell people when they ask me this question, I say, how many autonomous vehicles are being produced today? I'm talking about trucking specifically, but how many are being produced today? Well, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. So even if, even if you want it to, the adoption rate is going to be a function of capacity of being able to produce the vehicle. And that capacity is not coming anytime soon, which segues to a different question I wanted to ask you. So what about fuel, right? So there's two, two big competing interests for the future of 
fuel. And of course, we all have a vested interest in this because of sustainability. So you've got the hydrogen fuel cell and you've got the electric vehicle. How do you see that playing out in the transportation market? I'm uh, going on a limb here because I'm pretty ignorant on the details of the technology, uh, to be honest. But I, I don't see any way where everything's not going to move to electric. I, I just don't see a future where everything doesn't move there. All the most of uh, large manufacturers are not putting any R and D money into combustion engines. Hydrogen has its own issues. No one's talking about having hydrogen cars that I know of, unless someone's out there doing this. I just don't know about. The question is, what's what's the timeline going to be for it? My sense is it'll go electric if the battery technology can improve. And the way I'd like to think about that is think about fax machines when those came out. Right, that was a new technology in what they are mid '80s, and now it's gone. And but but you know things and dial-up modems, and you, you look at where we are now, and that's only 30, 40 years. Right, it's not that long a time. So how will things advance going forward? Now that there's much more emphasis on battery technology, they're just simpler machines, right? And now the the question for trucking is, can they provide the power? Right. And that and the charging stations, that'll that'll be solved, I think. I think the network system will will catch up. But if I had if I was a betting man, I would bet on electric over hydrogen. But I, I'm not as close to the technology. Yeah, it's it's a well, like a lot of these things, it's fun to sort of envision because if if we knew, as I always tell people, if I knew the answer to that question, I'd be sipping champagne in the Hamptons because I would have put all my investments on where it's going to pay out. Right. But it is fun to talk about it and think about uh, maybe we can get back together in a couple of years and look at these competing technologies and see where they're at. It's always fun to look back on what you said three, four or five years ago and, and see how how close your forecast was. Right. That's scary. Doc, Dr. Chris Kaplis, it's been great to have you here today. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, it's uh, it's nice to see uh, that your continued involvement and in being out in the front end of uh, freight and transportation and logistics. So thanks for your participation today. Great. Thanks, Irv. Thanks, Steve. Really been a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.